0: Welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and Part 2 of the Loft Pass Incident, a Cold War Tragedy. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and we're glad to have you with us as we try to solve one of the last great unsolved wilderness mysteries remaining, the unusual deaths of nine members of a cross-country ski team comprised mostly of Russian university graduates in 1959 an event that Russia tried to keep a secret for 30 years. And, of course, we ask why. A few notes regarding research. Temperatures. Minus 18 degrees Celsius is 4 degrees Fahrenheit. Multiple conflicting reports have provided a range of temperatures for that night, but when you average it out, it comes to somewhere between minus 10 and plus 10 Fahrenheit. The last night was probably somewhere between these figures. Definitely possibly sub-zero weather. Second note, please forgive me in advance for mispronouncing any names. I checked Jetloff before we started, and I've been pronouncing that correctly, as it would be pronounced in Russian. Third note, always feel free to send your input to me at 1001 Podcast at gmail.com, and that includes ideas and theories. First, as promised, some of the more accepted theories for you to review. First, the group ingested hallucinogenic mushrooms and tripped out, leaving the tent thinking they were in Shangri-La. One story goes that the local Mansi tribe actually fed mushrooms to reindeer, and then they let the reindeer digest them, having discovered that reindeer urine was hallucinogenic. How true that is, I have no idea, but it is interesting. No drugs were found in the skier's systems at the autopsy, so that idea is out. Second, an avalanche. Still a possibility, but people familiar with Dietlov Pass and the location of the tent, if that's where it was, say highly unlikely. This was not a steep slope. Third, the group heard loud sounds that they mistook for an avalanche and got out of there fast, some still in their sleepwear, most without shoes. A bomb crater measuring 100 feet wide and 50 feet deep has been located on Google Earth, further down on the eastern slope of Dead Mountain. More to follow on that one. The tracks, if they are the real ones and not staged, showed an orderly exit, but with the exception of two of them, all in stocking feet. Fourth, a wild sex orgy and drinking resulted in all of them leaving the tent in a frenzy. But no sign of alcohol was found and none of them had had sexual intercourse recently prior to dying. Fifth, low-level sound waves created by the canyon thermal dynamics caused panic and confusion. Okay, but that didn't break skulls and ribs. Sixth, a yeti. Better yet, a killer yeti. He attacked their tent, chased them down the mountain, threw them around like toys while they tried to fight him off like a group of Cub Scouts fighting off King Kong. And yet the monster left... No footprints. Maybe he was wearing snowshoes. Some say that one of the camera frames captured a picture of what might be a Yeti. You can go to JetLoftPass.com D-Y-A-T-L-O-V dot com Look at the pictures and the information and like me, you're probably going to think it's a person, not a Yeti. As far as I'm concerned, the Yeti's out. Seventh, fireballs. Two types. One caused by nature the other a byproduct of nuclear testing, having been witnessed to explode at times in brilliant bursts and known to be witnessed most often near nuclear storage or testing areas. There are dozens of reports on this phenomena. It might have been common in the Urals, as some people say, but fireballs alone have never been known to kill people. Note, it was very likely pictures of fireballs or plasma orbs found on Semyon Zoloritav's second camera. Eighth, that between one and three of the group were working for Soviet intelligence and had brought radioactive samples to place in the hands of CIA agents who had arranged to meet them there. The deal was botched, and the bad American agents killed the entire group. I'm betting heavily that in 1959, the U.S. had been receiving reports of Russian nuclear activity, and that's why they developed the U-2 spy planes, to prove it. So they already knew, why bother to risk more agents? Maybe one of the group was going to sell some secrets and was using the ski trip as a cover for a meet-up. Maybe a few of them, who had worked at secret facilities, were planning on defecting. Maybe the CPSU, Communist Party Soviet Union, was getting suspicious and they asked the trusted war vet Semyon Sasha Zolotaryov to go along to keep an eye on the suspect or suspects. At least two in this group besides him had worked at top secret facilities. Maybe that's why Zolotarov had, unbeknownst to the rest, two cameras. On that fateful night, he left one in the tent and carried the other on his neck. One roll of that film was found on the camera, destroyed, in part, they said, by water, but not entirely. But he may have been the good guy in this episode as well. His carry camera showing photos of balls of light passing behind tree branches, and what shows like a rocket falling in two of the pictures, Was found around his neck. These were the last frames he took, so he was trying to photograph the strange phenomena he was seeing, with hopes of doing what with it. I think to leave proof of what was going on around them and what had caused all this. He wanted us to know. I think he knew they weren't coming out of this alive. Ninth theory the old standby aliens. I don't think so. Again, put together the rocket and the plasma orbs when first witnessed, thought to be a byproduct, of sophisticated particle accelerator weapons used by the Luftwaffe in World War II to shoot down and sometimes pursue planes. And following that, seen near a number of nuclear weapons testing facilities. Tenth theory. It is very possible that the Jatlovsky group died due to a series of events originally caused by military testing of top-secret weapons in the area of their campsite, that a follow-up attack by the KGB may have occurred, and that a restaging of the crime scene may have taken place to cover it up and plant false leads as to what caused the skiers' deaths. If any of this occurred, they deserve closure and truth, and so do their families. I've looked at all the theories, and I believe that some type of weapons were probably involved and that they were very likely followed by a cleanup mission to make sure there were no witnesses. Whatever route you take toward an answer, this is an incredible story. When Anatoly Gushkin published his highly controversial book The Price of State Secrets is Nine Lives, in the so-called Enlightened Russia of 1990, he was still forced to announce, 40 years after the fact, that his theories that Russia was doing any military testing in 1959 were all pure conjecture, just fiction. But Gushkin had it right. They were testing so much that parts of the Ural Mountains glowed, and fiery plasma orbs, likely created by the lease of nuclear energy into the atmosphere, danced over the mountains. Look it up, and you'll find that fireballs and glowing orbs, while found in nature, are also thought to be a byproduct of nuclear weapons production and testing Russia was so tight-lipped about the ski incident that it wasn't until 2003 that the story of the Jetlov pass came out and still to this day many details like the diary mention of their stop in Sarov home to the soviet union's top nuclear research and testing facility are purposely omitted from the narrative and the maps most of the individual diary entries mention Sarov, one, due to Yuri Krovenyshenko's arrest by the police for public singing and general goofing off, and two, because the group picked up equipment there in Sarov, and three, because they had a great Q&A session with school children interested in hiking. Very innocent, except the local guards at the station were very, very uptight. The events of what we're told was their last night alive, February 2nd, 1959, have been detailed in Part 1, but to refresh your memories, the ski team, as the story goes, had bedded down for the night in their large tent on the side of a gentle mountain slope, the east slope of Dead Mountain, when they were excited by something occurring in the sky outside their tent. Camera photos from Zemyon Zolotarov's camera show a brilliant burst of light a rocket visible in the sky, and web-like plasma orbs moving through or behind trees. Those shots probably taken when they reached the woods. It has been said that they had set a camera on a tripod to get some of those last pictures. Valentin Yakimenko, who was a fellow student to the Jetlov Group and a member of the rescue team, presented at the Ural Federal University at the annual Jetlov Conference in 2015 an examination of the films in the group cameras. He claims Zolotaryov grabbed his camera to take a picture of some lights in the sky. According to Yakamenko, two of the negatives seem to depict a section of rocket or plane which may have broken off after a failed military experiment, a possibly a two-stage rocket launch. As previously mentioned, you can review the pictures at jetloftpass.com forward slash cameras forward slash Zolotaryov. I'll leave a link in the show notes for you. That brilliant light picture I talked about included the tops of the back of heads or hoods of three of the team members who must have been positioned outside standing in front of the camera, which apparently was on a mount. That may have been and probably was the last picture from the campsite. Zolotarev may have taken those glowing orbs from the tree line as branches are visible with the orbs. The tent site has no trees. It's on a barren slope. It needs to be noted that the brilliant light shot tells us a lot, that when that picture was taken, the group, obviously fascinated with something in the sky, was taking the time to photograph and watch the lights in the sky. Something happened as a result of that blinding flash, or what followed it, that caused them to leave the safety of their tent and head downhill. Seven to eight of them in single file, if we can believe the tracks that were found. Two more tracks joined their trail midway down the slope. Did the flash signal an attack? Was it a natural occurrence? Or was it an explosion? All we know is that at least seven sets of footprints were found leaving the tent, heading down the hill, down the slope, in a single file. The tracks disappeared after 500 meters, that's 1650 feet, about five football fields. And that's the middle of the pass floor very likely much deeper in snow. They then walked across a narrow plain to the tree line on the other side, amounting to a nine-tenths of a mile hike. There were two with boots. The others were in their stocking feet. They'd traveled in the dark, across snow, with some of them definitely lacking proper clothing and walking in an opposite direction from their supply stash that they'd created for their return trip. Eventually. All of them took up different positions at different distances from a notable cedar tree that's located near that wood line. They were free at this point to separate, take up positions, climb trees for firewood, and dig shelters to try to survive. So they were not in captivity or tied or being interrogated at that time. If any had been injured up to that point, they were being carried. If seven footprints leaving the tent is correct, and two joined them. That's all of them, that's nine. Which would mean they were all standing when they left the tent. Now, nearly a mile away, and in the perceived safety of the tree line, they were far from the tent and on their own, but but slowly freezing. Why leave the tent? And since they did, why not head for the supply stash? And why in their socks? That and the injuries that they suffered have been the biggest part of this mystery. One theory holds that while they were distracted by the light show, they were approached by an armed group who demanded they drop their knives and hand over their clothing so it could be searched, so it could be searched, and they could be interrogated. Remember, nothing was stolen from the skiers' pockets or the tent, so theft was not an issue. If this scenario is true, the attackers were looking for something specific. If they were government agents, maybe microfilm. If they were from the local gulag, Did they consider this group to be escaped prisoners, men and women together? Doubtful. Continuing with that theory, at one point, the attackers dropped their guard and members of the group jumped them, receiving rifle-butt blows that crushed skulls and broke ribs. The attackers regained control and for some reason marched the skiers down the hill to a point distant nearly a mile away. It just doesn't add up. If the footprints leaving the tent are correct and not staged, because to make it down that slope, they had to be standing. It looks like they were all standing, not beaten, not lying with crushed skulls and broken ribs. But we do know they were hurrying to get off that slope, because otherwise they would have grabbed their boots, proper clothing, and skis, and skied away downhill. Keith McCloskey, an advocate of the theory that the crime scene, if it was one, was restaged as a part of a Soviet cover-up, and who researched the incident for many years and has appeared in several TV documentaries on the subject, traveled to the Jatlov Pass in 2015 with Yuri Kunsevich of the Jatlov Foundation and a group. At the Jatlov Pass, he noted, there were wide discrepancies in distances quoted between the two possible locations of the snow shelter where Dubinyina, Kolevatov, Zolaritov, and Thibaut, Thibaut Brignoles, were found. One location was approximately 80 to 100 meters from the pine tree where the bodies of Doroshenko and Krivanashenko were found. And the other suggested location was so close to the tree that anyone in the snow shelter could have spoken to those of the tree without raising their voices to be heard. This second location also has a rock in the stream where Dubya's body was found and is the more likely location of the two. Back up at the tent site, The location of the tent near the ridge was found to be too close to the spur of the ridge for any significant buildup of snow which could have fallen as an avalanche. Furthermore, the prevailing wind blowing over the ridge had the effect of blowing snow away from the edge on the ridge on the side where the tent was. This further reduced any buildup of snow up there. McCloskey also noted that Lee Ivanov's boss, and Ivanov was the director of the investigation, Evgeny Okashev, who was deputy head of the investigative department of the Sverdlovsk Oblast Prosecution Office, there's a title for you, was still alive in 2015 and had given an interview to former Kamarovo prosecutor Leonid Proshkin, in which Okashev stated that he was arranging another trip to the pass to fully investigate the strange deaths of the last four bodies. When Deputy Prosecutor General Yurikov arrived from Moscow and ordered the case to be immediately shut down. Okashev also stated in his interview with Leonid Proshkin that Klinov, head of the Sverdlovsk prosecutor's office, was present at the first post-mortems in the morgue and spent three days there, something Okashev regarded as highly unusual and the only time in his experience it had ever happened. And this from McCloskey speculation exists that the campsite fell within the path of a Soviet parachute mine exercise. This theory alleges that the hikers, woken by loud explosions, fled the tent in a shoeless, shell-shocked panic and found themselves unable to return for supply retrieval. After some members froze to death attempting to endure the bombardment, others commandeered their clothing only to be fatally injured by subsequent parachute mine concussions. There are indeed records of parachute mines being tested by the Soviet military in the area around the time the hikers were there, according to McCluskey. Parachute mines detonate while still in the air, rather than upon striking the earth's surface, and produce signature injuries similar to those experienced by the hikers. Heavy internal damage with comparably less external trauma. These are not shrapnel mines. They emit destructive waves capable of knocking down buildings and stopping tank columns. McCluskey's theory coincides with reported sightings of glowing orange objects floating and falling in the sky within the general vicinity of the hikers, potentially military aircraft or descending parachute mines. And we add, another group of hikers 31 miles south of that ski group that night witnessed glowing orbs in the sky to their north, and it made the papers. That placed the orbs roughly over the group's campsite area. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time visit a new state of mind learn more at hereyouareaz.com and here's how the report read on the evening of February 2nd another student hiking group led by Anatoly Shumkov climbed Mount Chistop their notes Mercury is way below minus 30 centigrade at least there is no wind finally one more trek upward and we're on the top a truly unique feeling the main mountain range of the Ural stretches across the northwest. About 25 kilometers away, the snowy white dome of Mount otorton is looming against the dark night sky. That entry from Mikhail Vladimirov, member of that ascent. Our ski group was already preparing for the descent when the sullen clouds in the north suddenly flashed silver. A white spark flew upward from the depths of the valley of otortum and floated between the mountain peaks. And we add, that white spark could have been a ground-launched rocket carrying a parachute bomb. This thing was flying silently and slowly from the south to the north over the ridge of the Urals. It was glowing quite brightly. The way it illuminated the hovering clouds at the height of 2.5 to 3 kilometers was very strange. That from Anatoly Shumkov, the leader of that group who had just climbed Mount Chistop, and was getting a show. McCluskey continues, Some also speculate the bodies were unnaturally manipulated by cover-up or clean-up teams due to characteristic liver mortis markings discovered during the autopsy, as well as burns to hair and skin. Additional slip-ups and varying witness accounts of the tent scene being changed before the first rescuers got there have been circulating out there. For instance... Photographs of the tent allegedly show that it was apparently erected incorrectly, something the experienced hikers were unlikely to have done. This would indicate that it was either reconstructed or moved, possibly away from a bomb crater. And a crater on the eastern slope has been found, as as earlier mentioned, using Google Earth. A similar theory alleges the testing of radiological weapons and is partly based on the discovery of radioactivity on some of the clothing as well as the bodies being described by the relatives as having orange skin and gray hair. Furthermore, the initial suppression of files regarding the group's disappearance by Soviet authorities is sometimes mentioned as evidence of a cover-up. But more questions arise from the sole survivor, Yuri Yudin. He always felt that the Soviet military had probably been responsible in some way. In an interview last year, he recalled that he had been asked to identify the owner of everything found at the scene, but had failed to find a match for a peculiar blanket that seemed to be of military origin, and was known to be used at prison camps, as well as by the military. And here we note that found on one of the girls, between two outer layers of clothing, which incidentally were inside out, a pair of military-style glasses. In the tent, a pair of skis not used by the group and a piece of similar ski, leading him to suspect that the military had found the tent before the volunteer rescuers. Whether or not they had been involved in their deaths or a restaging of the tent, no one knows for sure. Juden also recalled that the authorities had seemed more interested in why the hikers were in the area in the first place than in how they died. If they were really killed by a natural force, then there would be no secret and we would not be talking about this 53 years later, he observed at the time. Add to this a report of a bomb crater which came out just this past November from a Russian blog called planetavosky.com, which, thanks to Google translation, reads, planetavosky.com reports that Valentin Dejderyov, a longtime Jetlov Pass investigator, claims he has found a previously unknown crater approximately 30 meters, that's 98 feet, in diameter about three kilometers or 1.86 miles from the location of the pass on the eastern side of Dead Mountain where on February 2nd 1959 a group of experienced ski hikers led by Igor Jetloff mysteriously perished. After examining an aerial photograph of the terrain, Detsterloff concluded he was looking at the remains of a weak nuclear explosion which turned rocks in the area to a reddish glass. Weak meaning not on the level of Hiroshima. And we add, very interesting. If you dig around, you'll find that it takes the equivalent of a 500-pound bomb to leave a 100-foot diameter crater. We say equivalent because a smaller nuclear device present then in 1959, and being tested, could achieve the same. A German, now Russian, Luftwaffe parachute bomb called Luftmine 500, like the ones Russia inherited from the German stockpile when Germany fell, comes in two sizes, the 500-pound and the 1,000-pound bombs. It is designed to destroy using a blast wave to knock down buildings and destroy tanks and armored vehicles. If you look it up, you'll find that primary blast injuries caused by being under 1,000 feet from this bomb's blast include crushed skulls, broken ribs, broken necks, bloody faces, and other assorted internal injuries caused by both the blast wave and being thrown against trees and rocks, etc. External discoloration would have been experienced due to the heat and possible radiation given off by the blast. Parachute bombs igniting over the treetops where the group was trying to survive could also cause those injuries. A failed weapons test? Same results. Pieces of exploded rockets or bombs would likely have been found and removed by a radiological cleanup team equipped with Geiger counters and assigned to follow up the testing. What if they had pitched camp within 500 feet, one-tenth of a mile, of that blast, and their campsite had been moved and restaged out of that area so the blast crater and any fragments of the bomb would never be seen or found? We could try to make the case that they all suffered death in one explosion, And all was restaged to make us believe that something entirely different had happened. Except that the coroner said that many of them died six to eight hours after eating their last meal. Those deaths would have come at midnight to 2 a.m. Back to Soviet secret weapons testing. We have yet to prove that the Soviet Union wasn't just kissing babies and trying to make peace flower rings in the 1950s. What follows here is not conjecture. First and most important, keep in mind the Cold War scenario that had Russia wildly scrambling in the late 40s and 50s to develop not only an atomic bomb, but atomic super-secret weapons that could be used for dozens of purposes, like radiating enemy combatants, knocking down planes, or stopping an enemy tank column trying to travel through a snow-covered pass in the Urals. All this takes practice, and of course they had to test those weapons somewhere. We'll begin by dispelling any notions you might have regarding there being no Soviet nuclear weapons testing years before the U.S. said they discovered that they even had nuclear capabilities. And we'll illustrate the Soviet disregard for human lives in the process and in the wake of this testing. This from a New York Times article by Marlise Simons, November 7, 1993, entitled Soviet Atom Test. Used thousands as guinea pigs, archives show. On the morning of September 14, 1954, in the Ural Mountains, about 600 miles southeast of Moscow, the Soviet military exploded an atomic bomb in the air near 45,000 Red Army troops and thousands of civilians as part of a military exercise. How many people were killed or maimed or became ill as a result of that exercise may never be known. But a film of the test recently obtained from secret Soviet military archives sheds new light on the often reckless nuclear testing during the Cold War and the use of people as guinea pigs, nuclear specialists say. Among the disclosures of the film, parts of which were shown in Paris last month, are that the Soviets, in a single test, exposed their troops to radiation levels 10 times as high as the maximum then permitted for a whole year for American troops. It also discloses that the Soviet troops were exposed to high radioactivity for an extended time, at least the whole day. The purpose of the exercise, as explained by the film's official narrator, was to test whether troops could fight a battle in an area immediately after it was hit by an atomic bomb. A committee of Soviet veterans is seeking government compensation and special medical treatment for what the veterans say are years of radiation-induced illnesses. And the film provides the first public documentary proof that the test took place. Veterans were recently told by Russian generals that the explosion was an imitation atomic blast. And that was the end of the article. We add that Russian generals have always said stuff like this, and the Russian government is no different today, despite Glasnost. Coming out the winter when Germany fell in 1945, Russia inherited countless stockpiles consisting of all types of weapons. So many, in fact, that it took years to figure out what they were capable of. For many were products of top German scientists who had been busy with all types of rocketry, nuclear-tipped missiles and warheads, bombs of all types and sizes, radioactive high-intensity beams capable of taking out planes, exploding radioactive devices using high-intensity light beams, death ray machines, and even, it's rumored, death ray pistols, and a host of other toys the Soviet war machine could use to kill people and destroy structure and machines, which is what armies do. Remember, they got half the German scientists, and the U.S. got the other half and help them change their names and get high-paid jobs here in the U.S. with Operation Paperclip. Some of those German toys were powerful, like their particle accelerant explosive weapons. That, when tested, they emitted fireballs in the sky, sometimes glowing blue or green or other colors, as was seen on a film just recently during a Putin visit to one of his weapons factories. Whoops, put that one back in a jar. These aren't new, as fireballs jumping from mountain to mountain in the Urals was a common sight in the 1950s. And that wasn't all that was seen. Railroad tracks disappearing into mountains and not coming out the other side. Glowing clouds. People dropping from weird diseases. Deformed babies. High mortality rates. All the usual nuclear radiation suspect. Particle beam accelerators, you ask? Really? In 1959? No way, you say. That's Star Wars stuff. During World War II, the German electronics firm Siemens developed a particle beam weapon for the Luftwaffe. It was invented by Professor Max Stenbeck in 1935. You can look it up. As well as these names. Heinz Schmelenmeier, Richard Gans, and Fritz Houdermans. They were all leading figures in that project. How the particle accelerator machine worked was that it interrupted the magnetos of engines in Allied bombers and brought aircraft down to lower altitudes into the reach of flak batteries. Norwegian-born Dr. Rolf Witterow wrote in his autobiography that he worked on a particle accelerator X-ray transformer for this project at Hamburg in 1943. The Philips subsidiary Valvo also participated, and much of the engineering was performed by CHF Muller and Company. Wittereau later rescued the device from the rubble of Dresden and delivered it to General Patton's 3rd Army at Burgrub on April 14, 1945. And that's when the U.S. got hold of that technology. A second rival device, Ernst Scheibold's Rontgen cannon, was developed at Grobustheim, south of Frankfurt. This employed a particle accelerator cupped from beneath by a beryllium parabolic mirror with a bundle of nine beryllium rods being used as an anode at its core. The entire device was steerable at Allied bomber formations. These were not lasers. They directed hard radiation at aircraft and were the forerunners of Star Wars weapons today. They were developed in the 1930s, folks. After the 40s, The technology was incorporated into weapons that could be mounted on Jeeps, set on tripods, or even carried in a special backpack and used as a weapon. A huge effort was made in Russia and the U.S. to make these deadly weapons small and highly portable. I'll spare you the long description of the last U.S. weapon to be used in the open atmosphere. The U.S. made Davy Crockett nuclear rocket but a publicized test in 1962, just three years after Jatlov, showed that this shoulder-fired missile packed a wallop of 25 tons of TNT and could be fired, with some accuracy, over two miles. You can look it up, the Davy Crockett missile. It's my theory, and I think mine is most closely tied to Yuri Yakimov's theory, although we'll end up taking a few different turns. Yakimov was an outdoorsman, who had worked outdoors in that area for years. On one occasion, he was nearly the victim of targeted intense blast waves being directed at him from a set of blinding, swinging lights that literally fired blasts at him whenever he would look at them. Somehow they reacted only when they spotted his eyes. Maybe they were engineered to fire at reflections. No idea. The beams were pretty scary and focused. He could not determine what was behind the beams. He ducked behind a fallen tree, and he was there for a couple hours. And the lights kept shining in different directions, searching for what? No idea. Why they were there? No idea. Before the lights left, he heard a crackling sound like static electricity, like a generator shutting down. This happened to him only once. But he found other men that had had the same thing happen. Whether the lights were part of a secret weapon or from an unexplained source, he didn't know. Only that they had extreme targeting power. He thinks some members of the ski group may have been exposed to similar beams, but did not learn to look away. Yuri has spent years researching and digging for answers. And he's a big part of everything they know. And he's a big part of everything that's known at this time. Our reconstruction of the story begins here. With a view to using the remaining daylight, at approximately 5 p.m., our group set up the tent with the entrance looking south and stacked backpacks and other things inside. Someone in the group took a photo as the tent was being set up. This was grouped in what they call loose photos. It shows the tent on a snow plain, not in the woods or with trees visible. With them they had food for two or three days, at least one axe, a saw, and Igor's small camp stove that could be suspended inside the tent. The stove was filled with firewood they had brought along from the previous camp, but they never ended up lighting it that night. Nor did they make any diaries, which was usually a nightly event. The edge of the forest, visible in the last light of day, down the slope and across the pass below, was 1.5 kilometers away from the tent, and there was no other place to take firewood from. According to the investigation data, the air temperature in the region on that day was minus 25 to 30 degrees centigrade, which is minus 13 degrees Fahrenheit, with a strong wind. A campfire and cooking a hot dinner in the open was out of the question. They did not have enough firewood for that, and the strong wind would prevent it. Most probably Thibault Brignol, or Tebow, as friends called him, was on duty that night, awake and dressed. The rest took their places in the tent. They took off their outer garments, footwear, and hats and lay trying to make themselves warm with their breath under the blankets and their outerwear. They had no sleeping bags, just blankets. There was not much space inside the tent, so all of them, except for the one on duty, either sat or lay in their places. Each member of the group, in turn, had regularly made records in the group diary of the trip. Additionally, some of them kept personal diaries. But on that night, not a single entry was found in their diaries. We can assume they probably planned to do so after the stove was fired and it got warmer in the tent. They had prepared for a snack, brisket was sliced, and crackers were taken out. There was some coffee and flasks left from the last camp. Tebow, as the man on duty, stayed with his outerwear and boots on. After 6 p.m., already in almost complete darkness, he left the tent with a flashlight to take care of personal business and was surprised to see a strange glowing light in the sky. So he called into the tent to alert the others, some of whom hastily grabbed their clothing and stepped outside to see the light. Zolotarov, with his camera, snapped some pictures over the heads of the others and caught what looks like a rocket falling out of control in two of those frames. Seconds later, that was followed by a huge boom not too far away, followed by a deep rumbling and suddenly they realized that a bomb has detonated close by. A big one. And a brilliant burst of light suddenly hits them, causing Zolotarov to hit that shutter just at that second. Catching that brilliant light and the backs of three of their heads just before a blast of superheated wind knocks them down and collapses the tent, while at the same time the ground underneath them is rocked by the impact of that blast. Two of the group are knocked senseless, while the other two reel, Holding their heads. A nuclear test weapon has just detonated within 500 meters of their campsite. A weapon having the force of 20 tons of TNT. A mushroom cloud is rising in the night sky. Pieces of fallen rocket are falling on the mountain slope. The ski group has just been subjected to radioactive fallout from a secret weapon. And if they lived to talk about it, they would be opening up a huge can of worms for the Soviets. The blast wave and shock collapse the tent on the ones inside. In the darkness, the skiers inside grope for the only other flashlight, but can't find one. The front door flap is collapsed. They have no way to locate their clothing, especially their boots. And those who do place their outer clothing on inside out. They can hear the groans of those outside, and they know they're in trouble. Someone finds a penknife but it can't cut through the thick tent wall. Inside, Zolotarov, the 37-year-old veteran, realizes they are sitting in the middle of a weapons test and urges them all to cut their way out, not that they needed any urging. More may be coming, he says. He had removed his heavy, sharp finished knife and sheath from his belt for sleep. His boots are still on as well. Maybe wisdom from all his years in the military, never knowing when trouble would be approaching maybe also he was due to stand guard after Tebow. Maybe he was expecting trouble. He finally finds his NR-40 service knife lying beside him, removes it from his sheath and cuts through the tent wall finally freeing the panicked skiers. On the way out, the sheath gets lost outside the tent. Outside, Tebow has been flung yards from the tent by the blast and has a serious head injury from the blast wave. He has dropped the only other flashlight. They are all now trying to come to their senses in the blackness. And the first objective is to get down off this mountain slope and away from the direction other rockets might be coming. The rocket hadn't been the only weaponry on display that night. The sky was active with strange orbs and lights over Mount O'Torton, 12 miles away. They realize now that their lives may well be in danger. They're standing out on an open slope with no protection from the trees and no light, dead ducks if another bomb blast lands closer. Their best chance they feel being able to reach the tree line nearly a mile away. Two of the group have wandered off dazed in the darkness. They form a line and head downhill, knowing they must reach the valley and the tree line, which will provide cover, but it is nearly a mile distant in the darkness. Within an hour of the failure of a rocket carrying a highly explosive warhead, spotted reports came in saying that the rocket exploded somewhere along the eastern slope of hill number 1170, creating a huge fireball visible for miles. Another report came in from two agents who had been trailing the Jatlovsky group closely enough to make sure they weren't planning on defecting or passing any secrets. This ski group they knew had three members who had worked at top secret facilities and one who had been part of a huge nuclear disaster just two years ago. If word got out to the west that the Soviets had plutonium and were testing, but that that wasn't going to happen. Now more weapons were being tested. The next run scheduled for directly over the Jaltov Pass. Whether or not this was directed to hit the area knowing the ski group was there, we have no idea. But a logical guess tells us that at some point, they found out that the group was there and orders were issued to find the ski group and make sure there are no survivors. No bullets, no knives to be used. The members of this group were too well known just to be thrown in a gulag. The CPSU may have originally planned to dispose of their bodies once they became aware that they were there. One report says that a UPI report announced that the group had gone missing and was thought to have defected. A plane was loaded with deadly parachute bombs, 500 pounders, that could be detonated just above the treetops. The spotters had reported that the group had moved to the tree line. These parachute bombs would cause internal injuries similar to those suffered in an avalanche. Crushed skulls, broken ribs, internal bleeding. They could fake the avalanche later. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. We need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. So far, the ski group was still standing by the time they reached the tree line. The nine members of the ski group, Lujia and Nina, the two Yuris, the 37-year-old Semyon Zalaratov, Alexander Sasha Kolevatov, Igor Jetlov, Nicholas Tebu Brignell. And rustic Slobodan walk single file down the slope and somehow make it to a tall cedar tree near the tree line, where they start a fire. Not long after they arrive, two of them, Xenia and Igor, who were both fully clothed, convinced that the danger had passed, volunteered to head back toward the tent with hopes they could recover their clothing and supplies. They would return on skis with as much as they could. By now, the whole group has been outside and exposed to the freezing temperatures for quite a while. They're exhausted from hiking through deep snow and beating their frozen hands against their bodies, trying to get their blood to circulate. They watch Igor and Xenia disappear into the darkness. The remainder of the group starts a fire beneath the cedar tree. Yuri Doroshenko and Yuri Krivonozhenko cut branches from the cedar tree to feed the growing fire hoping this fire will save them all, not only from its warmth, but also possibly serving to attract a search party. As the others grab fallen branches, while trying to stay near the fire, the two Uries exhaust themselves, climbing the cedar tree to harvest more branches. Their faces, arms, and bodies, now becoming frostbitten, are becoming impervious to pain, and getting torn and bruised in every way by the branches and trunk of the tree. They are risking their lives, To save the others. Every minute in the tree and away from that fire is bringing them another minute closer to death than the others. One of them at some point shouts that he sees orange lights in the sky. Maybe it's their rescuers coming in helicopters. Roostic Slobodan at some point leaves the campsite half frozen, heading toward the tent and hopefully within earshot of the rescuers to call for help. After an hour's struggle, he makes it almost halfway before the orange globes begin to explode in the sky over the pass. These are bombs being carried by parachutes. The parachutes are lit up like weird orange mushrooms by flares that show the spotters which direction the parachutes are headed. The bombs start to explode. The pressure waves hit him like a sledgehammer. In the woods, the impact shakes the cedar tree. Yuri Doroshenko and Yuri Kravonashenko both fall and lie still beneath the cedar. Semyon Zalaratov tries to find a small shelter that can protect at least some of them and leaves the protection of the one fire to set another in that shelter. And the three, Alexander Kolevitov, Luja, and Tebow, follow him deeper into the woods and hurriedly begin to create a dugout from a natural crevice and cover it with boughs. Semyon suspects a KGB team is coming and he believes that they're now being targeted. Half frozen, huddled in the hasty dugout, waiting for their friends who have not made it back, and now having sunk to removing clothing from their dead companions to try to hang on to life themselves, Zolartov snaps pictures as strange luminous orbs move through the trees around him. Blasts of light burst all around them. Within minutes, all four were dead. Within a few hours, a military team on skis and carrying snowshoes and leaving no tracks came to file their report on the damage done and discovered the bodies of the group, some of whom had been badly injured by the energy waves emitted by those weapons, and some who had not, but all of whom were suffering badly from the intense cold and the fact that they hadn't had enough time to prepare for it before leaving the tent. The doctor who performed the autopsy testified in the criminal case years later. One question, how is it possible to explain the cause of the damage to Dubinyina and Zolotaryov? Isn't it possible to combine them into one cause? The answer. I think the character of the wounds on Dubinyinia and Zolotaryov, a multiple fracture of the ribs on Dubinyinia were bilateral and symmetrical, and on Zolotaryov were one-sided. Both had hemorrhaging into the cardiac muscle, with hemorrhaging into the pleural cavity, which is evidence of them being alive when injured, and is the result of the action of a large force, similar to the example used for Thibault. These wounds, especially appearing in such a way without any damage to the soft tissue of the chest, are very similar to the type of trauma that results from the shock wave of a bomb. Question. How long could Dubinyinia and Zolotaryov have lived? Answer. Dubinyinia died 10 to 20 minutes after the trauma. She could have been conscious. Sometimes it happens that a person with a wound to the heart, for example a serious knife wound, can talk, run, and ask for help. Dubinyinya's situation was one of complicated traumatic shock resulting from the bilateral rib fracture, with subsequent internal hemorrhaging into the pleural cavity. Zolotaryov could have lived longer. It needs to be taken into account that they were all trained, physically fit, and strong people. Kolotov and Thibault were also broken up badly. No wounds showing on the outside, all internal, caused by a bomb keep in mind that the pit they were found in was nine tenths of a mile through snow from the tent if she was hit by the blast at the tent they would have been dead before she reached the pit the others were in too bad of shape to carry her so either the tent was originally closer to where they were found and was relocated during the cleanup and restaging of the attack or the kill wave hit her as she took refuge in the pit and now back to our theory The bomb must have exploded right over the treetops above their heads as they were in the pit, or working on digging the pit, or cutting firewood. Or someone saw them and they were hit by a ground-based death ray or gamma weapon wielded by their attacker. As mentioned in Part 1, Zolotarov had a camera around his neck. The film had been damaged. He had left a second camera at the tent. Why he had two cameras was unknown. He probably survived until the pain became unbearable. Or he was found, at which point, due to his age and his KGB service record, maybe they gave him a choice between a suicide pill and a broken neck. The decision was made by the CPSU to cover up this huge military blunder, and the Soviet Army made sure there were no living survivors members of the KGB moved in quickly with a plan to reconstruct the crime scene to throw searchers off base. A step-by-step method was devised to reconstruct the crime scene to tell a different story, showing panic and death by exposure, not from weapons in KGB. They had a short window of time, and they made a few mistakes, and the CPSU never expected the chief investigator, Ivanov, to have the clothing tested for radiation. In fact, One pilot who was ordered to fly the bodies to the morgue in Ivdel refused until they were placed in zinc caskets. Apparently, he had been involved with removing victims of Soviet weapons testing before. This narrative and theory may sound outrageous to some of you. But as we found, the deeper we dug. Many in Russia have spoken up about it, and criminal cases are still being brought to Russian court on behalf of the families of the victims. The last one was turned down this past August of 2018 by the Russian court. Their answer being, they died from hypothermia, exposure to the elements, case closed. And this following piece is about as close to an admission of guilt as Russia will ever get. This is from an interview with Evgeny Okashev, who supervised the investigation into the death of the tourists in the mountains of the northern Urals in 1959. Evgeny Yokoshev was the deputy chief of the investigation department of the prosecutor's office of the Sverdlovsk region. This is what he remembers. When it became clear that the tourists had died, we organized an investigation team under the direction of criminal prosecutor Lev Ivanov, and I was appointed to supervise their work. The impression of the examination of the tent, with its cuts and remains of food inside, was that the tourists had just sat down to supper and suddenly felt panic that made them all rush out. We tried to collect more facts about the pass. We learned that the location was a sacred site of the Mancy, and that women were not allowed to go there. Since the tourists' group included two girls, the Mancy were the first we suspected. However, this version was soon discarded. Interviewer question. How did you follow on this version? What made you discard it? Answer. I called the Ivdell district prosecutor and asked him to find a literate Mansi, an activist with whom I could talk. So when I came to Ivdell, there were already three Mansi men coming there at the prosecutor's request, one of them a quite literate person, people's deputy to the regional council. I had booked a room for the three of them at an Ivdell hotel, but they refused to stay in it. They preferred to sleep outside, in the snow, with their dogs. This is how the deputy, Mansi, explained it to me. I ride my sledge dogs even when I go to attend a session of the regional council, and I always sleep with them because I feel it hard to stay indoors. We talked with him about the Mansi and their traditions. He asserted that the place where the tourists died was in no way sacred. On the contrary, any Russian appearing among them would be looked upon as something divine. People would try to touch such a person, make him their guest, as this holds good promise to all. It was absolutely clear from his behavior that the man was telling the truth. After this talk, the assassination by Mansi Theory became irrelevant, but the question of panic remained. Question. Why was the military involved in the search? Answer. This was on our request, and there were reasons for that. Shortly before that, we met with a worker from one of the prison camps in the North Urals. He described strange flashes of light which he and his wife saw late that evening on their way home from the cinema. The light came from the direction of the supposed accident with the tourists. We also received evidence from other local residents, and all of them spoke about a similar phenomenon. All testimonies were entered on our records of interrogation. We got a suspicion of existence of a military test field somewhere around. Could that be true? Could flashes be caused by a failed rocket launch that had killed the tourists? Question. But again, there's no such record in the criminal case. So what happened then? Answer. A group of the military under the command, if I'm not mistaken, of Colonel Archukov arrived. I talked to him, and he convinced me that no such facilities were nearby, and no possibility of missile launches. But there was one instance that put us on the alert. When the last bodies were found later in May, an order came to collect all items found at the pass and send them for radiological examination. Also, all people who had been in contact with the things found in the tent and nearby were ordered to undergo body counting. And so it was done, but neither a reassuring nor any other results were made known to us. And again the fact of some secret military tests being held was coming to mind. We applied with a letter signed by the Oblast prosecutor to either the Prosecutor General of the USSR or the Federal. I don't remember exactly now. Asking to explain, what really were we investigating into? And how was it related to radiation? Could it be so that even the top commandant of the Ural's military district knew nothing of any tests of armaments held there? In response to our letter, Deputy Prosecutor General Comrade Yurikov came to meet with us and gave orders that we were to tell anyone who asked that the tourist's death was an accident. Yurikov evaded all our direct questions about tests of armaments. I mean, he did not deny this version, but simply avoided direct answers. What's more, Yurikov took absolutely no interest in the course of our investigation, as if the picture of the scene was absolutely clear to him already. He, however, took the case away with him. With that, our investigation came to an end. Just imagine, at the very height of the investigation, when dead bodies with strange injuries have just been found. The case is being taken away! And I clearly remember when we were signing our letter in the office of the Oblast Prosecutor Kleinoff. He himself asked in doubt whether we had omitted something and had not fully checked one or the other evidence. We told him that if the top epistles discard the military incident version, then all is left to us is to consider other possible versions. He found our considerations convincing and signed the letter. But again, The reaction from Moscow was such that our suppositions of a military involvement had been neither confirmed nor disproved. Question. What is your opinion? Why Urikov ordered everybody to say that it was an accident? Answer. It was, obviously, an order from the CPSU Central Committee. Next question. Was KGB involved in the investigation? Answer. I think they had been involved... Only I was not let in on that. The KGB investigators must have been attracted. Such was the usual practice then. I can even suppose that while we sweated over fact-finding, they had already known more with their powers. Question. We have recently got through to the then head of the KGB investigative department for Sverdlovsk Oblast. The officer's answer was, quote, We were not engaged in that case, definitely. End quote. HE, HOWEVER, REFUSED TO MEET WITH US IN PERSON. ANSWER. SO MUCH FOR THEIR INVOLVEMENT, WHY DID HE REFUSE TO MEET WITH YOU IF THE KGB HAD REPORTEDLY NOT BEEN INVOLVED? WHY THEN SHOULD HE FEAR TO REPEAT THAT TO YOU OPENLY? IT MAY WELL BE THAT HIS DEPARTMENT HAD REALLY HAD A HAND IN THE INVESTIGATION. THIS IS THE FUNCTION OF INVESTIGATORS OF THE COMMITTEE. SUCH WAS THEIR TOP SECRET ACTIVITY and your interlocutor had simply no right to discuss their work with you. Question. Let's say the tragedy was caused by some test. From the very beginning, the KGB performed their own investigation into the case. They quickly find out that, say, the plane had dropped the bomb in the wrong place. A disgrace at government level that must be concealed by all means. It may well be that it was decided to bury the worst injured bodies in four meters deep snow in hopes to find some better solution before they're found. Meanwhile, the case was assigned to a civilian investigating office which, on Yurikov's instruction, would file the case away in storage as an accident. Answer. We can suppose many things here, but I prefer not to in the absence of facts. Question. According to eyewitnesses, when the last bodies were found, Prosecutor Ivanov's behavior changed abruptly. He looked depressed and in despair. Could this change be related to Yurikov's order to write it all off to an accident? Answer. I don't know what to relate it to. We, Ivanov and I, were in a very difficult situation then. Parents of the young people came to my office... Some of them cried and called us fascists, trying to hide the truth from them. I lost sleep after such charges, but could tell them nothing beside what I was instructed to tell by my superiors. Just imagine the situation: mother or father of a student in my office. They come crying, saying they had just lost their only son or daughter. Like you, want to ignore it altogether, don't do any real investigation, allude to an accident. We told them it might be an earthquake, a storm, or anything like that. But look, what else could we tell them? We knew absolutely nothing ourselves. Parents wrote letter to the authorities at all levels, I think to Khrushchev too, asking for investigation to be continued. The investigation was nevertheless closed. Not on our initiative. Question. Many people mentioned the unusual red color of skin of the deceased. Answer. Yes, the skin color was really unusual. Ivanov mentioned this in his report to me. Who else would have known such things if not him, a war veteran and a criminal investigator? He had seen many people frozen to death before, but nothing like this, ever. Question. So what could have happened to them? Answer. I have a strong suspicion after all those expert examinations, particularly after the radiation analysis made by some order from the top authorities, that there had been tests of some secret weapon or a launch failure. By that time, the USSR and the USA had signed a test ban and nuclear weapons production cut back treaty. New extra power devices needed to be created. It may well be that due to special secrecy, Tests were conducted at locations unknown to the west. The students might have walked into a test area and got injured by something of that kind. Question. Right? and forensic expert Vaz Razdini, too, described heavy injuries as if bodies had been hit by an automobile. So talking of rocket fragments, where could they have disappeared? Answer. The military might have collected them. There are mountains more testimonials, but I think you get the point. And those were the key questions and answers, years later from the man in charge of the investigator's office. Those testimonials include the mysterious death of pilots who were involved in the first sightings and the transport of the bodies, of medical staff involved in the preparation of bodies. At least one said that both women, although the story says they were found three months apart, were brought in at the same time and that there were 11 dead, not 9. Clothing was found to be radioactive. All testimony of lights in the sky was ordered removed. Objects were moved. It looks very much like the Russians had something to hide. In 1990, the retired prosecutor Lev Ivanov published an article, The Enigma of the Fireballs, where he states, When E.P. Maslennikov and I examined the scene in May of 1959, We found that some young pine trees at the edge of the forest had burn marks, but those marks did not have a concentric form or some other pattern. There was no epicenter. This once again confirmed that heated beams of a strong but completely unknown, at least to us, energy, were directing their firepower towards specific objects in the woods, in this case, people, acting selectively we've presented all the theories and now it's up to you to come up with your own you can always share your ideas with us at 1001 podcast at gmail.com and you Apple listeners we also very much appreciate reviews so please take the time to send us a review for 1001 Heroes Legends, Histories and Mysteries until next time this is your host and storyteller John Hagedorn And this is our story.